0: Into to our Neighborhood Church podcast. Join us on Sunday at any of our locations. To learn more about our church, visit NeighborhoodChurch.com or download our church app. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again this morning. I'm Steve Ellis. I am one of the uh, elders here at Neighborhood Church, and occasionally uh, they let me out of my, my cage. Um, we are continuing our ser- series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. It's entitled Following Jesus Together, and this morning we're going to be looking at a very, I think, well-known passage out of the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. So while you're turning there, Mark chapter 12, it's uh, in your worship folder. There's a little outline there. Verse 28 through 34 is what we're going to be focusing on. But let me ask this question. How many of you are familiar with the, uh, the KISS principle? K-I-S-S. Not this. Not not that. This. Keep it simple. Yes. Thank you. Probably most of you have heard it at some point. It's a design principle attributed to the United States Navy back in the early 1960s. And basically the idea is that Things are easier to understand when expressed in their simplest terms. Leonardo da Vinci said it this way. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. It's the idea that very often less is more. I heard that a lot from judges when I was still practicing law, as they were frustrated with the ever-growing piles of paperwork, thanks to the word processor. You've probably heard the joke Lawyers, the only species on the planet that can file a 300-page document and call it a brief, right? (laughs) There is something compelling about getting to the point. What's the bottom line, right? I say that very thing to my wife all the time. What? I'm not making any value judgments here. It's just, you know, as a guy, I just find that I tend to be more interested most of the time in the box score. Who won, who lost, how many runs, hits, errors. That's it. My wife, on the other hand, she wants the whole play-by-play, right? The color commentary, the backstory on the little girl singing the national anthem. That's not bad. It's just different. Perfectly complimentary, right? But we want the summary. That's why we love Cliff Notes, isn't it? How many of you in your studies or college elsewhere leaned on Cliff Notes for a summary of some particular work or a discipline? Anybody? Am I I the only one that was looking for shortcuts? But this is essentially what we're going to see in our passage this morning. It's It's the Cliff Notes version given to us by Jesus for the entire will of God. Boiled down to its simplest form. It shows up here in Mark chapter 12, Matthew chapter 22, and Luke chapter 10. In common parlance, it's called the great commandment. If social media was around in the time of Christ, we'd probably be calling it the, the greatest tweet ever told. A concise summary of the purpose for life in 140 characters or less. So simple. And yet, and yet, I, I don't think we will ever be able to fully plumb the depths of what it means in this life to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself. We could spend a lifetime exploring all of what that really means. You know, one of the amazing things about Scripture is the depth of meaning, the layers of of understanding that exist within its pages. I'd bet that every single one of you here, if you've been a student of the word of God for any length of time, you've experienced reading a passage in the scripture that you thought you knew intimately, that you thought you had exhausted in terms of understanding, only to see something you had never perceived there before. Charles Spurgeon said that uh, no one outgrows the scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's simple enough for a little child to understand. And yet profound enough that the greatest minds will never grasp the fullness of its meaning. The word of God is alive, says Hebrews 4.12. And that means the Bible continues to speak to us even today. So... Let's see if we can find something new for God to show us this morning. Will you pray for me, with me? Father God, I just ask that you would illuminate our minds, that you would enlighten our hearts with your word this morning as we look into this greatest commandment, this instruction to love you with everything we have, our entire being, and then... Our neighbor as ourselves. Well, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning. We ask for your blessing upon all of the families represented here, and we give you the glory and the praise in your name. Amen. Mark chapter 12. Uh, The events recorded here occur during what we call uh, the Passion Week. It's the middle of the week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. A few days earlier, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna. He entered the temple and drove out the moneylenders who had turned it into a place of commerce. And now they're coming for him. We see three distinct groups here in chapter 12, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. They didn't have a whole lot in common with each other, but it is amazing the alliances we see that were formed against Christ. There's an ancient proverb that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and we see that here. They all agree on one thing, we've got to do something with this Jesus character, How do we get rid of him? So they are putting their heads together, and they come and ask him a series of questions. They couldn't find fault with his actions, but they're hoping if they can get him to say something controversial or politically incorrect, maybe they can get him canceled. And they all take a shot. First, a political question from the Pharisees and the Herodians, the whole, should we pay taxes to Caesar Caesar query and verses 13 to 17 that Pastor John Wyatt took us through last week. And Jesus reminds them that while we are subject to government, God is our ultimate authority. And then come the Sadducees for round two in verses 18 to 27, posing a theological question about the afterlife. This was a group, the Sadducees, that didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead or eternity in heaven or hell. To them, it was all about the here and now, And they present a bizarre hypothetical to Jesus about a woman who ends up getting married to seven different brothers from a single family because the men keep dying off. And they ask Jesus, well, whose wife will she be in the next life? They actually think this is a problem. They're like, there can't be a resurrection. Think of the problems it would cause. And in verse 24, the Lord's answer to these highly credentialed men with all their degrees is basically... You guys don't know what you're talking about. God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was, I am. He's the God of the living, not the dead. So there obviously is life after physical death here. And by the way, the purpose of marriage and procreation is for this life, not the next. You guys don't understand the nature of heaven. And now we have round three, starting in verse 28. And this is basically a meaning of life question. Essentially, they are asking Jesus, what is our ultimate purpose? And again, they're hoping he'll say something they can challenge him on. Oh, you say this? Well, what about that? And Jesus answers them by quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The parallel passage in Matthew 22, verse 40, records Jesus as also saying, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, everything. You get this right, everything else is covered. Jesus has just summed up the entire meaning of the law in two points. If we love God above all else, we don't blaspheme, we don't worship other things, or hold anything in higher value than him. And if we love our neighbor, we won't be stealing from him, we won't be lying about him, or chasing his wife, or coveting his things. You won't even be secretly going, you know, I would if I could. Jesus says the whole of the law is fulfilled in love. If you love God first and foremost, and love your fellow man as you already love yourself, everything else is covered. What's your ultimate purpose? It's love. God first, and then our fellow man. That's the bottom line. Before we go any further, let's just talk for a second about the nature of the love being considered here. This is a love of intention. There is something much deeper than passion. Parents know that. There is something much deeper than sentimentality. There is the action of love, the sacrifice of loving someone. That is what we learn about love when we look at God. The Bible says that God is love and that love is of God, 1 John 4.8. So true love and its true source is God himself. And the Bible makes it clear, not just thinking loves the whole world, but in a particular and profound way. Not just thinking nice thoughts about us all day long, not being sentimental or affectionate, but something altogether more profound. What's it say in John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that. What does this thing called love look like in action? What is the that? What is it that gives content to this word love? What is the thing God does that is so loving that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? Or consider Romans 5.8. God has demonstrated his love toward us. How? In that, here it is again, this this particular profound way, this action, why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is how it was demonstrated. The ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate blessing of the ultimately undeserving. It could not have cost him any more and could not have been done for anyone less deserving, but that is how we know that the truest of love is action at personal cost for the blessings of others, We are called by God to a life of service through love to others, husbands, to their wives, mothers, to their children, to our neighbors, church, to its community. And Jesus says your ultimate purpose, first and foremost, is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. With all your heart. That's your leanings your direction, your pursuits, your inclinations. Joshua 23, 24 says, incline your heart to the Lord. Proverbs 2, 2 is similar. Incline your heart to wisdom. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, direct your hearts to the Lord. We see in these verses, it's the inclination, the direction. Loving God with all your heart means seeking and submitting to his will for the direction of our lives with all your soul. That's basically your essence, the very core of your being, the place out of which arises your emotions and your sentiments. Psalm 103, verse one. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. I actually hate this phraseology, but you'll often hear people to refer to someone, their spouse, or, or somebody they have a deep connection with as my soulmate, right? She's my soulmate. He's my soulmate. It means we're connected down to the very depths of our being. With all your mind, that's your thinking, what you spend your time pondering, your will, your understanding, your decision-making, your intellect. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Loving God with all your mind means bringing every thought captive, 2 Corinthians 10.5. And finally, with all your strength, that's your actions, your stamina, your physical abilities, what you do, Isaiah 40, 29, 31 says, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Loving God with all your strength means serving him in how you spend your waking hours. And when you all add it all up, heart, soul, mind, and strength, you can see it's your entire being, our volition, our emotions, our intellect, and our physical being all coming together to love God with all that we are. It's absolutely comprehensive. There's nothing left out. And I, and I think that's deliberate because the Lord knows our hearts. We're always looking for the exception, right? Always looking for the loophole. Yeah, but. No buts, not here. I mean, this sounds like an almost impossible task, doesn't it? I mean, how do we, how do we get there? We could talk for days on this subject, I think. We really could, but in the few minutes we have, I'd like to suggest just a couple of things, and and they're in your outline if you want to follow. Number one, I don't think we will ever get close to this idea of loving God completely until we have a correct understanding of who God is and conversely, who and what we are. So first and foremost, we have to recognize and honor God for who he is, the author of everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. He sets the boundaries for all of creation. He owns every bit of it. Everything is subject to him, says Philippians 2.9 and 10. Things in heaven, things on the earth, and things under the earth. He is the one who sets the parameters for our lives. He set it all in motion. He is the sovereign one. And yet amazingly, he is the one who redeems us. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You know, in the, uh, in the Genesis account, in creation, it says that, that mankind, men and women, were made in the image of God. The Imago Dei. We like that verse, don't we? But honestly, that is just about the last compliment we get in the scripture. Because as you turn the page, you see that image has been defaced by our sin the decision not to love or submit to god but to go our own direction and as a result we become catastrophically broken turn the page and you read things like jeremiah 17:9 that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it turn the page All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, as it says here in Ephesians 2. But the message of the gospel is that there is a solution to our problem. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And here is where we see the collision of God's truth with the culture. Because are you going to see the culture today tell you that you're a wretch, a sinner, someone broken and in desperate need of forgiveness and redemption? I don't think so. I mean, that's hate speech. What is the prevailing message of our culture? Is it love of God? Love of the creator? No. What is it? Love of self. You see the messages all around you. Be your best self. Live your truth. Do what's right for you. Live authentically. It's self-care, self-awareness, self-determination, self-empowerment, self-indulgence. Selfie. And everybody has to affirm you, what you feel, what you want, or they're being oppressive. The Apostle Paul talks about this in the first chapter of the book of Romans, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. But this is nothing new, people. It's nothing new. It's the the lie of the ages. It goes all the way back to the beginning. What did the serpent say to them in the garden in Genesis chapter 3? You will be like God. You can decide what's right and wrong. You decide what's true for you. There's nothing more important than living your truth. That's a lie. And it's an inherent contradiction. Because if it's just your truth, it couldn't be any less important. Really, if it's just your truth, it doesn't change anything it doesn't have any power at all. God is the author of all truth. You know, when I was a kid, we used to have an insult. You'd say to someone, you're full of yourself. But in today's culture, that is almost a virtue. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, that it's what comes out of the person that defiles him. From within, out of the heart comes evil thoughts and acts of immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, envy, pride, foolishness. All these things come out from within and defile the person. We need to be emptied of self, not filled with it. And the reality is only Jesus can make you whole. He forgives our sins. He restores us and he builds you up with what is outside of you, not that is within you. It is his holiness, his righteousness, his spirit that comes to reside within us and makes us worthy before a holy God. You know, I think it's interesting that the first words out of Jesus's mouth in the Sermon on the Mount are blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that understand the true poverty of their own hearts, the reality of their own brokenness, because then what happens? Meekness, submission to God, and he fills you with everything good. When we understand our brokenness and what it cost God to redeem us, that is what generates a response of being able to love God with all of our heart soul, mind, and strength. Number two, we need to to understand and acknowledge the word of God for our life. Over and over again, it tells us how to love. The creator has spoken, and we need to hear what he said. You know, we all have our favorite books. I have mine, and that's not bad. I've got shelves full of them at home, and I'm sure you do too. And I'm not saying you can't find some wisdom in a good book. But at the end of the day, you know what all that is? It's Adam's opinion about one thing or another. We need to hear from Adam's maker. The scripture has more power in it than anything you will ever read. And what it says about itself is true. Hebrews 4:12 says the word of God is like a sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We're pretty good at seeing others accurately, we think, but we're not so good at being able to see ourselves honestly. You want to see yourself clearly? Read your Bible. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It says in James 1 that it is a mirror. I look in the mirror once in a while. Guys do. I mean, I don't think as much as the ladies. I mean, guys, do we care that much about being pretty? Look at us. Apparently not. But if you look in a mirror, it helps you see what you need to fix. Your hair is out of place. You've got food in your teeth. My wife was a dental hygienist. We have floss everywhere in the house. A mirror shows you the problems and it causes you to act. It also says it's a seed. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 13. And the interesting thing about a seed is that it grows inside of the thing in which it is planted. James 1.21 says that we are to receive in all humility the implanted word. One of the amazing things I've learned about the word of God is when you study it, when you memorize it, it takes root and it stays with you and it comes up throughout all of life. You face a troubling situation and there it is. It springs up and actually causes you to grow in the eternal life that you've been given. It is also a lamp, a light we all always want to know what to do with our lives, where to go next, how to live, and the scripture helps to show us the way. The Bible is full of wisdom and principles about a how to live our lives God's way. It gives great guidance. It tells you, if you want to be wise, do this. If you want to live well, do that. Go this direction. Don't go there. That will end badly. And finally, Liberty. The word of God is for our freedom. It is for our liberation. James says it is the perfect law of liberty. Jesus said he came to bring liberty to the oppressed. We hear a lot about oppression these days. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says real oppression is sin. That's what enslaves the human race. And you don't have to look very far to see that reality. And real freedom is the knowledge of forgiveness and being made righteous in Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus says in John 8, if you are truly my disciples, you will abide in my word, and then you will know the truth, and it will set you free. You abide in it. You live within its parameters. You live within its light. You abide in it. Then you know the truth, and that truth sets you free. And last, Loving God means we live it out. And and here's where it gets a little close to the bone. You mean I, I might have to do something. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. You know, one of the interesting things about reading the Gospels is that you will discover Jesus never leaves people where they are never. The adulteress in John chapter 8, go and sin no more. Nicodemus in John chapter 3, someone who had dedicated his life to study and living the law, like like the apostle Paul, a Pharisee. And what does Jesus say to him? You need to start over. You need to be born again. It's a matter of the heart and spirit. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, what was the issue? sexual immorality. That's why she was at the well in the middle of the day instead of in the morning. And Jesus sits down and strikes up a conversation with her about getting a drink and living water. And in the middle of that conversation, he says, go and call your husband. And those of us, you know, in polite company would think, oh man, don't go there. That's That's awkward she says, I don't, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, You've answered truly. You've had five. And the man you're living with now, it's not the committed relationship for life as it God intended. The rich young ruler that we looked about a couple of weeks ago in Mark chapter 10. You will never find an encounter by the Lord Jesus Christ with anyone, anywhere in the Gospels, where Jesus says, Hey, you're good. You're fine just the way you are. He is always pointing people to the issues of the heart and what needs to change. Jesus never once says, just believe in me and you can stay exactly the way you are. He never said that. But you'll be amazed as your understanding of God's word develops, as your understanding of Jesus Christ develops, how the love of God works in you and it changes you. When you look into the mirror of God's word and you start to see the things in your life that need to be burned away, that can be hard. Some of that stuff doesn't want to die and it will scream in agony. It's not pleasant sometimes and it takes time. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7 where he says, man, what's wrong with me? It it feels like there's a war going on inside and I'm doing the things I don't want to do and the things I want to do I'm not doing. I love the Lord, that's the evidence, and I want to do what's right, but I keep messing it up. Thank goodness for chapter 8. There therefore is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah for that. But Jesus not only has the power to save us through his love, he has the power to transform us through the Holy Spirit from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We have to live out his love. That's how we are salt and light to the world. The church is not just a building and a Sunday morning appointment. We need to believe in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ enough to own it as business people, to own it with our children when we're at the ball fields and when we talk with people sitting around us. Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For the righteousness of God is revealed. How? How? From faith to faith to faith to faith. That's how the world sees it, when we live it out. You know, the work of evangelism is not done until people find the love of Jesus, but you'd be amazed at the avenues through which they find him. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Sometimes all we do is put a rock in their shoe, but very often that's the exact thing that God will use. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's, That's the macro mission. That's the big picture. That's the bottom line. But within those parameters, within those boundaries, every single one of us here has a micro mission. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Every single one of us has a purpose. It's going to have something to do with loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, because that's the overall purpose. But within that framework, God has a specific work that only you can do. And he doesn't always reveal it all in once. He rarely does. But you know what? Over the years, I have seldom heard a testimony where someone says, You know, I was sitting on my couch watching Netflix, and the Lord just spoke to me. I'm not saying that can't happen, but more often than not, it's something like, You know, I, I started serving over there. Or I got involved over here. I didn't really want to do it. But then something happened. I met someone. I spoke to someone. I saw a need. God pricked my heart and I realized this is what he wants me to do. Lance and Susan Peterson first went to Ecuador, what was it, 15, 18 years ago? And they've been back almost every year since. And Lance still serves as our missions coordinator because something happened. I don't know specifically what the Lord is telling you to do, but I know he's telling you something. He always does. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to be about the kingdom here and now because the world so desperately needs it. You pray? Lord God, your word challenges us. The truth confronts us. Lord, help us to understand what it means to love our neighbor. Help us understand what it means to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. As we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, as we look to your word, to see how you loved as we become imitators of you. Lord, we ask this in your name for our blessing. Amen.